Good morning. Welcome to Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Thank you for joining us as we study through God's Word. Oh, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. I hope you guys had fun with New Year's Eve last night. Um, if you guys are note takers, uh, I've entitled this message a response to the gospel. Now we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. Uh, so last time we were in Galatians, we saw conflict between Jewish believers that thought um, that the Gentiles who were coming into the faith had to follow the law. And on the other hand, Gentile believers were being taught by grace through faith. Did I move this? Um, so Jewish believers still had a works-based belief which led to conflict among the body. This morning, as we open the book of Galatians again, we will see that Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, will fall to the same hypocrisy, as well as we'll see Paul step in with a rebuke. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21, and if you need a Bible, I'm sure we can get you one. There's some in the back over there. Um, yeah, so let's pray, and then we will dive on in. So, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Just thank you for a new year, Lord. I just pray that as we go into this new year that, uh, we'll really be taking things to heart, Lord, that you're teaching us through your word. Um, Lord, help us to really seek you this year. Uh, I just pray that as we go into this message that we'll have ears ready to hear what you have to speak to us. Lord, wait, may we be able to take from this message and um, impact our lives for your kingdom um, today. Lord, I pray this on your name. Amen. So, starting with Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So the first thing we see here is that Peter has come to Antioch. Now this is after the Jerusalem Council that was back in Acts 15, which recognized equal rights for Gentile believers. How long after the council did Peter come? I have no idea. I don't have an answer for that question because it's not the main focus of the passage. I mention the fact that this is after, uh, after that because it gives us an understanding of the events, that this is not that the events that transpire in this passage are not in immediate succession of what we discussed last time. Uh, we will be looking at a different issue that is rooted within the same issue as before. Paul has some uh, pretty strong words for Peter, though. <laughs> he says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. According to Paul, Peter's at fault. It is all his fault that there is still strife between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. Now, he doesn't just tell us that Peter's at fault and just walks away like, it's your fault. <laughs> he gives us an explanation as to why it is his fault. He goes. Uh, here's how the scene goes. Peter's in Antioch with Paul and the Gentile believers. He's sharing a meal with them. 
and fellowshipping with them. Some believe that the meal was likely an agape feast. Right? And back in this time, they would remember the Lord's death by taking communion together at these feasts. Now, Peter, before these certain men from Jerusalem came down, or in other words, the Judaizers, the legalists, came down, uh, he would eat with them. He would do that beforehand. But once they came down, Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles because he feared what the legalists, what the Judaizers, what these certain men would think. Now there are implications here that Peter's, uh, in Peter's fear, he turned the Gentile believers away from the table of the Lord. He separated himself from them. One commentator stated, knowing their background, Peter knew that they would be offended at his fellowship with Gentiles who had not come under the law of Moses. In their, in their eyes, these uncircumcised Gentiles were not really Christians at all. Therefore, to please them and to avoid a conflict, Peter treated these Gentile Christians as if they were not Christians at all. Peter made a decision based on fear. How relatable. <laughs> How often do we make decisions based on fear? But And this is not, not even the first time that Peter has done this. Peter is a very relatable guy. Right, looking back at Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 34, it says, Simon, Simon, before, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned away again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to bo both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter was on his high horse. He was, high, he was pretty high on himself in this situation. And we all know what happened afterwards. He denied Jesus out of fear of these people around the fire. These three people, he was in fear of what they would think, of what the implications for him following Jesus and committing to do what he said, he was in fear. So he did the logical thing, not logical, and denied. When push came to shove, Peter caved into fear of man, and he does the same thing here. But the difference with Peter here compared to when he denied Christ is that he now has the Holy Spirit inside him. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now just because he is these has the Holy Spirit and he's the leader does not mean he's perfect. The evidence is right here in Galatians. He allowed the fear of man to control his decision. How often in our own lives do we allow fear to take over? Maybe we feel that God is calling us to share a word with, uh, share his word with a person at work, a coworker. Or maybe it's just some random person on the street that we're just passing by. How often do we allow the fear of rejection to take a hold of us? And then we just ignore it. Just keep going our way. What role does fear of man play in our own lives? I can say 
personally that I can't even count the number of times that I've allowed fear to control me. <laughs> it takes too long. <laughs> right? There's still specific moments in my mind when I was at Bible college, when I was even in high school, where I felt like, oh yeah, I need to I need to share something with this person. But I didn't. I still remember it. We need to be willing to step out fearing God more than we fear man. Now for Peter, there was, an, a, there was a bigger impact for, uh, to his fear than just himself. It didn't just impact him. It's like, oh no, I fear. No, it says in verse 13 that, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Not only did Peter's fear impact himself, it also impacted the Jews who were with him and Barnabas, Paul's ministry partner. Now there's a very good reason as to why Paul withstood him to his face. In other words, publicly. And we'll look a little bit more at what Paul had to say in a bit. But Peter, he had great influence. When he made a decision, others likely followed. Usually what happens when you're a leader. You're on display. Ev ev you're like under a microscope. Everything you do is analyzed. So Peter, his, his decision had great impact. And we see that it's not just the random Jewish believers who follow after what he did. Barnabas was among them. It's crazy to think that the very same Barnabas, who was the trusted friend, ministry partner of Paul, the, the same Barnabas who stood beside Paul when he first met the apostles, been with him every step of the way, and the same Barnabas who's described in Acts 11:24 as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith he also falls I love what Martin Luther had to say about this no man's standing is so secure that he may not fall if Peter fell I may fall if he rose again I may rise again we have the same gifts that they had, the same Christ, the same baptism, the same gospel, the same forgiveness of sins. If we were in this very same situation, how would we respond? We, al we, must al we also must always be aware of the fact that we will always have those who will look up to us doesn't matter if you're a pastor, a Bible teacher, whether you're, you have a job that you work or you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're a boss or you're just another employee, whatever your standing is within your job, there are always people who are going to look up to you. Right? This may be younger believers, people that you may be discipling, and as parents, definitely your kids. I know I'm going to have to learn that <laughs> learn that and I'm going to experience that coming soon um, 
but there's always people who look up to you. Always. However we respond is seen. However, however we respond, it may be followed. We need to be aware that, um, that our decisions don't solely impact us. Peter played the hypocrite, and the Jews followed his lead. So just something to think on, how's the example you're setting? Is it something worth following? Peter's definitely wasn't at this point. That doesn't put a damper on the rest of his ministry, per se, but in this moment, it's not worth following. He allowed fear to dictate his actions. Continuing here, looking at verse 14, we get to dig a little bit, uh, dig deeper into Paul's rebuke over Peter. It says, or for Peter, it says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jew, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Peter was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. What's the truth of the gospel? <laughs> it was mentioned last time, we're saved by grace through faith. There is nothing that can be done on our part that will ever bring about salvation or right standing with God. Nothing. But this isn't the message that Peter was sending. His message in doing what he did was if you don't follow the law, you're not saved. If you're not circumcised, you're not saved. If you don't eat kosher, you're not saved. I can't associate myself with these uncircumcised Gentiles. That's not the gospel. Paul saw this happening and called out Peter in front of everyone who was there. Everyone. This is not the same, like you might think, well, what, that doesn't sound right. Why would he do it publicly? It's not the same type of situation as described in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, which says, Moreover, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Not the same situation. It is one thing if Peter had sinned against Paul personally then Paul likely would have confronted him privately. Not the case. This was, a front, this was an affront against the truth of the gospel. Peter was basically telling them, if you want to be right before God, you must be like us. Law-following, law-abiding Jewish believers. <laughs> so, 
this required a public confronta confrontation on Paul's part. And Paul starts by pointing out the fact that Peter is being a hypocrite. When Paul says, uh, what Paul says is, you don't observe the law with strict obedience. You only do it when a certain men are around. How can you enforce it on every or force it down everybody else's throat? Peter was putting on a mask, acting out of fear, as we already discussed. You are a Jew who doesn't live like a Jew. How can you tell the Gentiles that they must live like the Jews live? Joseph Barber Lightfoot said, he is very emphatic. If you, born and bred a Jew, discard Jewish customs, how unreasonable to impose them on Gentiles. It's very unreasonable. It's very hypocritical. And Paul goes on to remind Peter how they're justified. In verse 15 through 16, it says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul states that they have been Jews since birth or by nature. They grew up observing the law. This meant following their strict diet, sacrificing, and following every single little detail of the law. There's a lot of details. Read Leviticus and you'll see just how much there is to the law. And though they observed the law, they know that there is absolutely no way they could ever be justified by it or ever be considered right before God under the law. There is no person except Jesus who was ever able in every way to fulfill the law. Jesus is the only one. In fact, the law was there to show us that we are incapable of fulfilling the law or ever earning salvation out of our own works. Paul is reminding Peter that they know that a works-based religious observance would never work. Only faith in Christ and what he did will ever justify. That's grace-based, not works-based. So if it is grace-based, then it's absurd that Peter would compel Gentiles to Jewish living because that won't save you. And Paul continues in, the pa in this passage by raising an objection that the Judaizers may have had about this idea of a grace-based uh, religion or um, relationship. It says in verse 17 through 18, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. 
Now, verse 17, as we read it in the New Kings, in the New King James, is a little tricky, can be a little tricky to understand. And I prefer how it reads in the NLT. It says, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. The objection that they have is what if we leave the law, but it ends up being the thing that actually saves us? Would that make Jesus the minister of sin? The one who promotes a different way, which is false. It's a reasonable thought. It is reasonable. What if? Christians like Jews still struggled with sin. So how could you be made right before God if you still have a sin issue? Reasonable thought. The thing they're getting wrong is that Christians are not instantly perfected at the point of salvation. I don't know about you. I'm not perfect. Right? We're not like, I accept Jesus into my heart. Perfected. Wow, it's like a magic trick. Right? No, we're not instantly perfected. That's not how that works. Their view here is that because you are still struggling with sin, you must need more than Christ. Must need it. You need to have the law also to be saved. It's kind of like a safety blanket, like a safety blanket, right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, in Christ alone. That's the word, yeah. Once we are saved, we go through this process of sanctification. Sanctification is defined in the King James Dictionary this way, the act of making a thing pure and holy. This is not an immediate transformation, but something that happens over time. Think of it like the act of purifying gold or even purifying silver, any precious metal. You heat it up, you scrape the dross off the top, you let it cool, and you do that over and over and over again until you can see your reflection in it. Then you know what you have is pure, is perfect. That's exactly what it's like being a Christian. You're being purified every single day. It's not, I accepted Christ, now I'm perfect. It takes your entire life. And even then, only ha- perfection only happens when we die. You're not perfected imme- immediately like these Judaizers thought. And Paul adds in verse 18 that we are transgressors if we try to build up those things which are already destroyed. It's adding to the thought, or a- adding to the idea. Jesus not only made a way to salvation through his death and resurrection, he also tore down the old com- old covenant, implemented the new covenant. Old covenant is gone. So for us to try and rebuild the old covenant makes us sinners. You may ask how. I love how another commentator put it. He said how it is a s- how is it it is a sin to build 
again away to God through the law of Moses in many ways. But perhaps the greatest is that it looks at Jesus hanging on the cross, taking the punishment we deserved, bearing the wrath of God for us, and says to him, that's all very nice, but it isn't enough. Your work on the cross won't be good enough before God until I'm circumcised and eat kosher. This is a great insult to the Son of God. It is a sin to try and add to what Christ has already done because he said on the cross, it is finished. That means there is nothing more to be done. Also, we already know that it is, it is a serious sin to add to the gospel. Back in Galatians 1, we are accursed if we preach any other gospel. And I'll tell you this, Christ plus works is a different gospel. <laughs> there is nothing to add. Now before we wrap up, um, uh, we see in verse 29, uh, 19 through 21, it says, For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been circum uh, not <laughs> crucified, that was awesome, crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. These are strong words by Paul. Most of you have probably heard these verses before. If you've been a Christian for a while, it's pretty famous passage. And it's a really good summary of what we've been talking about already this morning. The idea here is that the law is not dead. In fact, the, the law is actu actually has a lot of good things in it. Th there is, like, more, like, there's the moral law, there's, like, you could follow the diet and you're probably going to live better lives. <laughs> but it's not the thing that saves us. The law isn't dead. Paul died to the law. It's not what saved him. All of his sins, they were placed on Jesus. And when he died on the cross, uh, placed on Jesus, and when he died on the cross, they died with him. The same goes for us. We died with Christ, we rose with Christ, and our lives are not our own. When we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, we made a swap. Uh, we made a swap. Um, our old try to be good and right before God lives for Christ living in us. From now on, we live by faith, knowing that God loved us and died for us. The law is not a bad thing. It just won't save you. <laughs> and lastly, Paul finishes this confrontation strong with a pointed statement for certain men. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If I was to... if 
if I was to set aside grace, then Christ died in vain. If we could be saved by the law, there was no need for Jesus to go to the cross and die for us. There's no need. We would all have the law. We would all be, er, there would be no new covenant. It would just be covenant. <laughs> just one thing. Once again, Martin, uh, to quote Martin Luther, if my salvation was so difficult to accomplish that it necessitated the death of Christ, then all my works, all the righteousness of the law are good for nothing. How can I buy for a penny what costs a million dollars? The law does not and cannot save, but the gospel can and does. So as I close, I want us to be thinking about how we respond to the gospel. Or how, how do we respond to the good news of what Jesus has done for us? We saw how Peter responded. Peter responded out of fear about what certain men would think. And in, in so doing, he, he moved away from the gospel. He wasn't straightforward with the truth. And it led people astray. He seemed more concerned about what others thought than about what God thought. His decision had, had much bigger imp impact than just himself. We also saw how Peter responded. He defended the gospel. Paul had the courage to rebuke the leader of the church in Jerusalem in front of everybody. It's pretty good. That's, that's a lot. This is all before his missionary journeys. <laughs> this is like, like people still see him probably more as like the persecutor of the church at this point still, even though it's been like 15 years. Paul stepped up in, the def in defense of the gospel, wanting those present to know what the truth of the gospel was. And I feel like he explained that pretty good. So Peter and Paul had very different responses. My question to you guys, as we come into this new year, this chance to uh, start anew in a way, what is our response? Does the truth of the gospel change the way that we live and interact with those around us? Do we believe it is faith plus Christ or Christ alone? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage and everything that we can learn from it. There's so much in here. There's, there's still so much we could go back and, and study. So as we go into this new year, Lord, may we have the, the courage like Paul Lord, to stand for your truth, for the truth. Lord, may we fear you more than we fear man, fear rejection, whatever else we may fear. May we stand for you in the world that is growing so ev ever so dark. May we be lights in the darkness. Pray this all in your name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to message us on our Facebook page or on Instagram. God bless.